to swim. In fact, I taught myself how to swim during the pandemic. But what I don't love is the blotches that the chlorine and salt leave on my face. So I decided to treat myself to a facial. Raquel Mixon, owner of the Self-Care Spa and Lounge, prides herself on providing services around skin health and being an advocate for self-care. Raquel steamed, creamed, and caressed my skin until I was cooing like a baby. And she recommended excellent products to keep my skin healthy while I reach my swim goals. Not only will I place a facial at the top of my list of self-care items, but I plan to bring some other people with me. So book your next facial, massage, or wax service today at theselfcarespalounge.com. That's theselfcarespalounge.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Be Empowered with RC. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I know mine was jam-packed. And even though this is Monday and I'm a little bit low on energy, <laughs> I think that we'll all kind of pep up and be engaged in this discussion. So I have with me today some wonderful guests. I have Pastor Tennille Power and Anika Sterling Flores. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. How are that. you both doing today? Very good. How about you? Okay. Okay. I'm, I usually give my energy back up during this podcast, so okay. it'll happen soon. <laughs> All right. And then after that, get some rest. Right. Exactly. Um, so much is going on in the world. Sometimes it's just too much on your spirit. Indeed. So, yes. Let me properly introduce the both of you. So, Reverend Tennille Power currently serves as the pastor of Hazelcrest Community United Methodist Church CEO and the creative director of Serenity Coaching and Counseling, her non-for-profit um, as well called A Woman's Worth. She is a proud Chicago native and holds advanced degrees in theology and counseling. Her passion around advocacy in the anti-violence field, specifically sexual assault and domestic violence, began well over 20 years ago with her work at the YWCA Metro Chicago, leaving her tenure as the inaugural center director of the Parks Francis Center. She has advocated for over hundreds of victims leading them to survivorship, and she continues her passion and her work through ministry, community building, and therapeutic services. Reverend Tennille is the proud mother of three young adult sons, all living in Chicago, Illinois. Please give a warm welcome to Reverend Tennille Power. Thank you. Anika completed her undergraduate degree. I'm sorry. Anika Sterling Flores is one of the founding members and president of Sisters Speak. Sisters Speak is the Chicago Coalition to End Sexual Violence Against Black Girls and Women. Anika is also the community engagement manager for the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. Anika has over 20 years of experience in social services, including work and youth development, domestic violence, and sexual assault. Anika completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Illinois Chicago, where she majored in African-American studies and researched the problem with colorism within the black community. She also earned a master's degree in inner city studies from Northeastern Illinois University, where she researched misogyny within the faith community and its impact on men's violence against women in disadvantaged communities of color. Anika is passionate about drawing the connection between privilege and oppression to sexual violence, to sexual violence. She facilitates many of the anti-oppression trainings for the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assault 
and is the past chair of its People of Color Committee. Please welcome Anika Sterling Flores. Thank you. And this is the first time I have ever um, posted my bio on here, but since I'm engaging in this discussion, um, um, I am a writer, performer, and activist, um, and I identify as a warrior woman who began writing as a means of healing after a sexual assault. My personal healing led to the creation of my first one woman show entitled Runway Journey. And my work examines the intersection of race and gender, or I use the term sex, sexuality and faith, and seeks to find justice for and liberate those marginalized by society. I have over 20 years of experience educating communities on the prevention of sexual assault and its impact on society. And as a Chicago Rape Crisis Hotline volunteer and medical advocate with the YWCA Metro Chicago and Resilience, formerly Rape Victim Advocates, um, I provided support and resources to survivors and assisted them through the evidence collection and reporting process at area hospitals. I guest lecture at colleges across Chicago and lead workshops. Um, and I tell stories across the Chicago land area. When the world opens back up, I will be resuming that. <laughs> So thank you, thank you ladies for joining me today. So this is um, a heavy topic for those of you tuning in. Today we are talking about the impact of sexual assault on not only individuals, but also on communities. And as um, some of you may know, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And a lot of times um, that's an opportunity during those awareness months for people to get like inundated with a lot of information they didn't have already. And so you may find that there are a lot of other podcasts discussing this topic. And I tend to take a different slant on the typical topics during these awareness months. And so we're just having a conversation about a few things. So those of you who are watching or listening, um, feel free to send in a message, just comment on how things are going. Tell us how you feel. If you have a comment, we'll address that. If you have a question as well for um, any of my guests today. So I wanna start off with the basics. I've had conversations with people over the years. Well, I'm always having conversations about um, this topic and people would say, well, what's the difference between sexual assault and sexual abuse? So who would like to tackle that first question? I can take that if that's okay. So according to the laws in the state of Illinois, Sexual assault is any type of non-consensual penetration, however slight, of the mouth, vagina, or anus with any object. Sexual abuse is any non-consensual sexual conduct or touch. So anything that would fall outside of penetration. A lot of times when people hear the word sexual abuse, they're only thinking about the impact of sexual violence or harm towards children. But re really anybody can be sexually abused because it's anything that falls outside of penetration. And thank you for that distinction because yes, that's the first thing that when I talk to people, they think of, they're like, well, how can somebody be sexually abused if they're not a child? Mm -hmm. um, Pastor Tanil, did you have anything to add to that? No, just emphasizing just that point. Because um, hopefully tonight when we present our what are the facts and the truths versus what have been kind of like the societal understandings um, of sexual assault, sexual abuse, you know, and sexual awareness. Right. 
And then I want to dig in a little deeper because um, I have talked to people about um, what penetration is. And so I think sometimes when we use words that the three of us may understand, some people may not. So um, people that I speak to often will say, well, so you're talking about like, um, if we're talking about a heterosexual situation, a man penetrating a woman with his penis. But that's just one view. So penetration could be digital penetration, that's meaning right. with your fingers, you could be penetrating somebody with an object, you can use a toy, or you can use another object. People have been raped or sexually assaulted. People like to hear that term seems softer for people, but we'll get into that later. Um, with brooms, with guns, with all types of objects. Um, and so that penetration, I just want people to understand what we're talking about is not simply the penis being inserted in the vagina and that that can also happen anally. It doesn't mean that this is like two men together to be penetrated. A woman or a man can be penetrated with an object like you mentioned, Anika, um, and orally as well. If somebody is forcing something into your mouth in a sexual connotation, that can be sexual assault. That's right. Um, and yeah, so just want to make sure that we at least start off with some of the same information before we continue and people kind of get lost in the shuffle. So now when we talk about, um, Anika, you, you gave us that wonderful definition. And one of the key words that stuck out for me was consensual or non-consensual. So um, Pastor Tennille, what is consent? Consent is when you give the verbal right, you know, allowance to someone to perform a certain act or perform any type of activity with you. An emphasis on the verbal and with. And I say that because, and then Anika can definitely follow up with that, is often we think silence is submission and it is not. You know, um, a lot of times, at least in my experience, you know, sitting with survivors, they may talk about having this out-of-body experience. And in my head, I was saying no, but I couldn't verbalize it. And so therefore, if you do not get the yes, it is not consent. And I know, and again, I think Anika will um, bring this point home legally um, with, you know, the legal terms and definitions and boundaries around that. I know when I was transitioning out of the field around 2010, we have a no means no law. So at any given time, any given time, whether we may, it may start off on an date with two people, you know, two adults consenting people. And we're gonna talk about the age difference too. And you may give consent to kissing, you may give consent to touching. At any given time, you can say no to any further activity. Right. And so it, it's not a global yes, you know, not a global yes and yes to everything. No, you know, it really is a stage by stage by stage thing. And it's not a global, it may have been yes Monday, but it could be no on Tuesday. So right. it's not this perpetual yes, you know, right. and it's consent of two consenting adults. Mm -hmm. And in the state of Illinois, the, the age of adult is 17 and up. And I would even stretch it because then this becomes that gray murky water, you know, when a 17 year old consents to a 35 year old, you know, there, there is, that is still problematic. Right. right. You know, 
I, there's clearly an age differential, maturity differential, power dynamic differential. Right. Right. So it's two consenting adults within age, you know, and for every step, it's not global, it's not blanket, you know, yesterday means just 20 years from now, absolutely not. Right. So it's very specific and very circumstantial. And I think that can be problematic for some people who feel like they don't even realize that they think in terms of they have a right to another person. But let's say there's a couple, they're both 25 years old and they were dating. Um, sometimes when you're in those relationships, you feel like in the future, now I have a right to function in this way with this person because we did in the past. They have, let's say they dated for five years. For five years, they grew very close. They were extremely intimate. They may even have a child together. And so they feel like they know one another and they understand their nonverbal cues. So one of the thing you, things that you specifically said is that this is a verbal consent. Um, we're, and I'm, I wanna stress that we're saying verbal consent for two people who are hearing because this is a whole nother situation if you're in a hearing impaired community. Um, and so understanding that that verbal consent needs to be understood by the other person. So it can't be a situation where you're trying to manipulate them into saying the word yes, but they don't understand the question. Yes. Um, so Anika, did you wanna add anything to what? Yes, I just wanna add that there's a number of different situations where um, consent cannot be given. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, this goes back to what the state of Illinois specifically says about consent. So if uh, people are under the influence of drugs or alcohol or other substances, they cannot give consent. So if someone says yes, but they're drunk or high, that, I mean, it, that doesn't count. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's force or the threat of force. So if someone is, is threatening to harm someone, um, they can say yes under those circumstances, but the state of Illinois says that that compliance is mm -hmm. not consent. You know, that's, that's about survival. Mm -hmm. um, also, if they're under the age of, con of consent, and, and uh, Reverend Tennille already spoke to that. So the age of consent is 17 in, in the uh, state of Illinois. So as a 15-year-old says, yes, that is not consent. If they're unable to understand the nature of the act. So if someone uh, has some type of condition or uh, disability impairment or something, that prevents them from really understanding what's happening. Okay, they cannot give consent. And also if there's the use of coercion. Um, so if someone is threatening to say, hey, I'm gonna take away your housing or your employment or something else you know, that they need unless they perform a certain sex act or something like that, they cannot give consent under, the, under that circumstance either. Thank you for that. Um... So that's a lot of inf information already, just in the first few minutes. So I'm sure people watching and listening are like soaking all of this in. When we talk about consent, nowadays it seems like, oh, you know, it's a little trivial thing that people are like, either I got it and they, you know, don't need to discuss it. Or people are like, that's just something that people are saying now. It's a trendy term, this consent thing. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about is how people can, people who've had relationships and knew nothing about consent, and maybe they're hearing all of this information for the first time, and they want, may want to try their hand at this consent thing. 
for instance. Um, what are some suggestions that you would have for kind of um, sparking this conversation between two people around consent? Because I would imagine that one person is probably uh, more in tune than the other person um, in this situation if it's not already being done. And I know personally, I have spoken to a lot of people and in my own relationships and really had to take some time to explain what consent means and that it's not just for me and that they can take that opportunity to understand what consent means. Like, what does that look like for you? Like, where are your boundaries here? Because I know what I'm going to ask you, but I don't know what you need. Um, and so I'm just curious to know how you all would uh, suggest beginning that conversation around consent. Yeah, um, you hit the nail on the head for me around boundaries. Because uh, again, given the legal caveats to consenting adults, you know, no coercion, and both understand, you know, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, all of that, what that means. I, you know, I encourage couples, you know, to have those boundary conversations around everything in the relationship, you know, mm -hmm. from finances to, you know, outdoor um, outings, you know, to particularly around monogamy. And then though that can organically sometimes bring into that conversation, particularly around intimacy, you know, mm -hmm. do you have triggers that I don't know about? You know, is there a way that you like to be touched? You know, that, you know, is, is, is loving to you. You know, we often have used the, the love languages, right? You know, by Gary Chapman and a lot of couples read that and engage that. When you talk about physical touch, what does that mean? You know, cause a lot of times we can get so focused in the relationship that we forget, you know, we have, you know, background right we have villages that we bring to this forefront mm -hmm. and so if you have been you know a an incest survivor you know so then you know hearing something may trigger something you know a certain right. you know a lot you know there are a lot of couples like I, I need the lights on you know during our intimacy you know because mm -hmm. in the dark I was assaulted you know and so those things are important and it can be framed around you know intimacy our boundaries and exactly what say, what do you need? You know, what do you right. need to make you feel safe and make you feel um, pleased? Right. And I would add too, that everyone should understand that if you are wanting to engage in a sexual activity with someone, understanding that it's not just about you. It's not just about what you want and what you uh, need in that moment. If you have a participant, it's also about what they want and what they need. And so again, there needs to be that communication. There needs to be that openness and that willingness to understand that you may, you may not get everything that you were fantasizing about. You know, right. if that's right. not okay with the other person, then you need to get another fantasy or another partner. So right. and that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay. Exactly. And that's okay. Um, that made me remember, I went to a cuddle party one time. And, and, and my idea of a cuddle party was this whole orgy thing. So I don't know what that says about the fact that I went, but in any event, I went there because the topic was um, learning how to touch. I think the title was something like learning how to touch and it was a colon for uh, trauma survivors. 
And so I was like, oh, this is this is interesting. Maybe this isn't what I thought it was. So I go in very tentatively and um, and I just thought I'd like sit in the back and listen. And the facilitator was really talking like she was speaking my language. I had never heard. I've never been in a group like this. Um, and so she was laying out the rules. This is not about sex. If you are even trying to be sexually intimate in this environment, you will be asked to leave. So that immediately made me feel more comfortable. And then um, she started telling us about kind of the process for the day. And one of the things she said that we were going to do is learn how to um, give consent and learn how to hear no. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm thinking this is great, you know, like this is good. Like I'm going to find my voice and, you know, feel confident. And what I learned in that session was that it wasn't so easy for me to hear no. Mm. And I didn't know that. Um, and especially, you know, I'm thinking I got my chest out, you know, I know this. And, um, and then when it came time, we were partnered up. And so I asked the person, can I hold your hand? And they said, no. And and in that moment, I had to check myself and I was like, okay, I'm about to feel like, why can't I hold their hand? And then I, because that's not your body. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's not not my body. Why, why should this person feel the need to accommodate me? That's right. Right. Our bodies are not up for public consumption. Right. Yes. Right. A lot of these conversations, particularly with women of color and specifically for African-American women and men, you know, our bodies have been systematically used for public. That's right. Right. And we have to reclaim that. Yes. Yes. And my suggestion to couples is to practice those simple things, because we're talking about consent. It doesn't mean that you're going to have sex. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the other misconception, because you're talking about sex and in intimacy, intimacy doesn't mean that you're having intercourse or that you're doing anything that's sex per se. You can have intimacy and hug and still need to have consent. That's and so right. if people can understand what intimacy looks like in a broader context and not um, kind of limit intimacy to the sex act, I think it'll be much easier for us to grasp the concept of consent. Can I give you a hug? Can I Absolutely. put my arm around you? Yeah. And then, and in practice, you know what? They just said, they don't like that. Can I put my hand on your leg? Well, maybe they don't want you to put their hand on the leg and recognizing within yourself how that makes you feel when they say no. And then understanding that, that, that they have a choice to say no right now. They may say yes later, or they may say no later, but it's like you were saying earlier, Pastor, that it's not this global yes or this global no thing. You, you keep asking at any point in time. And some of the conversations I've had with people in the community, they will say, well, that feels very childish and it feels uncomfortable. And how would you all respond to that? Well, we need to practice doing it. So the more we practice doing it, the more comfortable it'll be. And in terms of someone saying that it's childish, well, I think it's it's about education. It's about being able to respect boundaries and Uh, I think it's a shame that we live in a society where we have more respect for property than we do for our fellow human beings. So we need to really check ourselves when we have those type of thoughts and, and, and beliefs. And I think a part of it too. Yes. Um, Particularly around the property, because you, I can't just take your car, you know, (laughs) got your car, you know, know, there are consequences to that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Also, I think it's important um, to have conversations with people. Why do you think that's childish? And I think a lot of it is rooted in this, we don't allow children to have boundaries. Mm -hmm. How many of us have been in situations, you know, younger, we think back, go on over there and hug Uncle Charlie. Go on over there, go over there and be be nice to Aunt Martha. Go ahead, you know, we often do not allow our children to voice their own agency safely. You know, I'm a parent, so I get, you know, safely, respectfully, you know, and definitely around that physical boundary. How many times have either we have experienced as a child or heard now other people tell children, go hug him, go hug her, go be nice, you know? And so we, if we start out like that, then we don't understand, you know, what it means to ask for that boundary. Right. And to your point, I mean, I, I, it's it's a shame that we have to have conversations with folks. Um, I've I've said, you know, if your feelings are hurt because a three year old won't come give you a hug, then you might need to go talk to somebody about that. Indeed. <laughs> it has that, you know. Right. And it's not just about children. You hear adults saying. You know, you meet them for the first time and, oh, I'm a hugger. And they go in to hug you, didn't ask you anything. And right. you know, they don't know, you know, uh, how I feel about that or if that's okay with me. So we really need to kind of shift our cultural mindset too right. about what's okay. It, you know, I, I almost said that the silver lining in, in COVID is that all those I'm a hugger people will think twice about just imposing on other people. Right. But it really shouldn't come to some virus. It's it's about consent. Right, right. That's a big one for me. And I will say that being um, a part of the queer community, that is something that is more on the forefront of people's minds in the queer community than in the straight communities. Because in a queer community, people are, are quick to, to ask certain questions and not to cross certain boundaries a little quicker than, you know, in churches, free for all. People figure since, since we love Jesus, we can do whatever. So that one is a whole nother topic. But um, but yeah, and I, and I think especially in the black communities, you know, it, we center everything around the family and that homey feeling and, and um, the idea of safety, whether or not it's truly safe is a different topic though. Um, but something um, um, Reverend Tennille, you said made me think when you are talking about how we treat property better and we give more respect to property, you know, you're, um, another example is you're not going to walk on somebody's grass without feeling bad about it. And and nobody has to tell you, like the moment that you go to step on somebody's grass, you're like, oops, oops, I'm sorry. But then when you go to touch somebody inappropriately, why is it so easy for you not to check yourself? That's right. And, and it's really, yeah, it is sad. It's sad. Like for me personally, it's infuriating. But um, we there's a lot of things that go into why we function like that. And we'll probably be here all night discussing it. But um, just something for people to think about that we do have a comment on Facebook. Um, someone says, learning more about consent has made me aware of my boundaries, boundaries I didn't know I had until I started understanding and talking about consent. I'm cognizant and sensitive now of how someone interacts with me. So that was a positive outcome of um, learning about consent. So that's good. Um, If there's anybody else watching, I'd love to hear your experiences about consent. Like, have those experiences been pleasurable? Have they been kind of eye-opening? Or were they frustrating? I mean, this is kind of a journey. So I know if nobody's 
um, tried their hand at consent, which sounds a little crazy because we should, that should just been, you know, something we practice regularly, but we don't always. Um, just let us know your feedback or if you have any questions, go ahead and drop that in the chat. So next, I want to ask you all about the, I feel like when we say sexual assault, on one hand, it could be more encompassing, like a general all-encompassing word. Like I say queer and I mean LGBTQIA, right? Kind of thing. So that umbrella term. But then in another sense, I feel like we often water down rape with the, with the term sexual assault. Um, and so I wanted to kind of talk about how you feel about that. Um, I, I have gotten a lot of resistance at times. I'm a storyteller, so I will stand up and I'll say vagina. And people would be like, <gasps> and I'm like, but another storyteller can say F you. And like that, that doesn't elicit any response. And I say like vagina mm -hmm. and, and that's problematic. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I tell a story and I use the word rape, it is like folks, I can see their butts clenching. I can see, I can hear their stomachs churning. Um, and I just wanted to have a little discussion with you all if you think that we use that term sexual assault as a softer rape term. And if so, why? I don't know the why behind it, but I do know that sexual assault is the legal terminology. Um, so when we say rape, that's not something that um, is on the, the books in terms of the law. That's just a common okay. word that we use, obviously, for that type of violence. Um, why they decided to do that? I don't. I don't know. Um, so I, you know, I don't know if, if, if Reverend Tennille has any additional history behind that. That's something that uh, that I that I'm now I'm curious about since you mentioned it. Yeah, a little bit dig, digging in the crate, so to speak, um, because of sexual assault, the sexual becomes an adjective, and so it's about the assault mm -hmm. um, because then in, in interchangeably with battery. You know, um, when, which we often, we've often found in this field, someone who doesn't get charged with sexual assault may get a charge with battery, you know, mm -hmm. 10 batteries on their thing. But it, it's about the defining of the violence. And that's, that is coming from, so it's an assault, but what type of assault, you know, okay. that, so it's framed like that. Um, I, I have often, um, interface my experience has been when people hear rape it's kind of like racist no one wants to be labeled as either a rapist you know or racist you know just interchange the p and the c you know and no one wants to be identified as that so it is that cringing like oh my god you know and so you not talk about that you know they were just hurt you know because even with that sexual assault tends to you know yeah, sanitize it a little bit, but also they were hurt, you know, and it's unfortunate that that, ha that happened to them, you know, because it, we don't want to talk about it, but that's why, that's a, one of the many reasons why we have to keep talking about it because right. it's slept under the rug, it's quiet, you know, and, and it's a mechanism of shame. Right, you know? right. And so, I mean, I've heard this, um, particularly in a lot of communities and definitely in communities of color, you know, you, you don't want to charge him with that. Oh my God, he'll be a sex offender for the rest of his life. Well, or her life, you know, well, probably should have thought about that before, you know, that happened, you know, and whatever the outcome will be, shall be. And yeah. there's a level of accountability with that. 
And I think the first time I started thinking about that was um, as a medical advocate, I would get called in the middle of the night when somebody um, they reported a sexual assault and they were at the hospital. And I, I don't know how this happened, but most of the calls that I responded to were about um, sex workers. Like, and I don't know if it was just where I was living at the time or, or what, but in any event, um, they were always beaten. Like it was not just the rape. It was like this horrible physical assault. And I would see things. I'm like, I didn't know your head could get that, could swell that big. I'm like, how does the skin stay intact? This is absurd, you know? Um, and it would be a John. And then I'm listening to these conversations and the pimp would come in and say, well, this is just par for the course. Like their attitude was like, well, this, this is what it is. But consent to one thing is not the other. Um, but it, it, during my time there, it was always both. It was always like this physical assault and the um, sexual assault. Um, so I can see what you were saying, uh, Reverend Tanel, about the assault and sexual being that adjective describing the type of assault. Um, okay, all right. So that, that was interesting. I'm thinking about common folk who aren't who aren't thinking about the legal definition and all of that, but um, I, I do hear that whole sense of nobody wants to be labeled a rapist. Um, yeah. Okay. Can I so, jump in for a second? I like that you mentioned uh, that scenario, the type of, of uh, situations that you found yourself um, in, in advocating for those those particular uh, survivors. Um, because that's a huge myth that somebody who is a sex worker can't be sexually assaulted. Right, right. And, and the analogy that I like to use is that um, when you go to the store and purchase a pair of pants, you can't grab a bunch of shirts and run out the door. If you're paying for the pants, you know, they, and the store owner agrees to sell you the pants, all you're getting is the pants. So in those many situations where, you know, they've agreed upon a certain sex act, um, that John decides that, you know, I'm not just paying for that act, I'm paying for you. And you're mm -hmm. going to do whatever I want you to do during this half hour, hour, whatever it is. And uh, when that's declined, you know, because that person still has the right to make the decisions about what they're going to do. Right. Um, some Johns become uh, physically violent and, you know, uh, batter, it's a battering type of assault as well. So those situations yeah. have to happen all the time. Yeah, they do, unfortunately. And then that, that whole, like you said, the, the myth about that, but then people feeling like they have their own opinions of um, who a sex worker is as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah. Sure. Um, so now we've talked about a lot that kind of falls into, but I want to hear you all give the definition of what is rape culture, because um, I think when I talk to, not even like community, but when I just talk to friends, they tend to ignore when I use that term, mm -hmm. or maybe they're ruminating. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I, I, I take it as they're like ignoring, like letting that pass them by. Um, and I've never kind of gone back and said, well, you don't have anything to say about this. But they also think that I'm paranoid when talking about rape all the time. So, um, so just to uh, kind of level set, what is the definition of rape culture? And maybe we can just discuss a little bit about that. 
So I would say rape culture is anything that exists within our community, within our culture, within the way that we're socialized that normalizes rape. So it's uh, it could be uh, lyrics of songs. It could be um, different images and messages that we see in magazines and movies and commercials that just normalize sexual violence, that normalize um, treating uh particularly women, because we are talking about gender-based violence, even though we do know that that men can be, men and boys can be raped, mm -hmm. but uh, it really normalizes uh, the dehuman dehumanization of women right. and girls as well. And, and I would add to that, uh, rape culture is the offspring of patriarchy and racism right. and right. militarism um, that because those things exist, because those operations exist, then you have rape culture, you know, right. that dictates many things, who can be a victim, what a woman is supposed to look like, what a woman is to sound like, what she cannot do, what she cannot do, and also what men can do, what men can't do, you That's know, right. what they, you know, what there are no boundaries and there are, you know, all of these boundaries, you know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so it, it's not something that's just birthed out of nowhere. It's exactly. coming from, capitalism, patriarchy, sexism, racism, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad you said that because, um, for instance, like my name, RC, people ask me about that all the time. And I tell them it is my personal protest against the patriarchy. And I didn't grow into who I am as RC until I started, until I got to a certain point in my healing journey as a rape survivor, because all of that, which I knew, before but being a survivor was like oh my gosh like this like I'm feeling this every day like how I'm viewed as having a vagina and that that's somehow um something that makes me weak and vulnerable and somehow gives somebody else the perceived permission to take from me um and so for me it's like my my authority my autonomy when, when I say who I am and I'm embodying that and it gives me that strength. And I know a lot of people kind of struggle with, um, and um, hopefully we have time to get into, um, in their healing journey, how to identify after an assault. Because I tell people all the time, I don't think the way I thought before I was raped. I don't feel the way I felt. I don't see the world the way I saw the world. I am not that person anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a comment here on Facebook, somebody or question, um, going back to consent, not to jump topics so quickly, but sometimes consent feels like it stands in the way of spontaneity. How does one manage both in a healthy romantic relationship? Well, I would say, you know what? Not to see uh, consent as being a, uh, something that's hindering, you know, right. romance or intimacy or anything like that. Make it sexy, you know? Ooh, I really yeah. want to touch you right now. Can I? You know? So get, get creative, but, you know, still get consent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and I, I, consent to me is the sexiest thing ever, but I know that for me because I feel empowered. Right. Mm -hmm. As a survivor, I think maybe that's my thing. But I would um, add to that. Right. Like you said, make it sexy. But there's so many ways 
that you can practice, like we talked about earlier, getting consent in other ways that will help you in that way. So for instance, when you're going out to eat, you don't, and you, you have your partner, you don't just go out to eat and just get them anything or not ask them if they want something to eat. You say, hey, do you want something? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't stop the process of you eating, that you're right. asking them what they want before you go. You ask people questions all the time and you sure. wait for their response before you proceed. That's right. And this is no different. You're just having a communication, a, a conversation about something. We function like that all day, but something in our head says when it has to do with sexual intimacy, it has to be different. That's it's right. still communication every step of the way. And there's another statement. Um, really grateful for this conversation and for strong women breaking down and normalizing consent at every step of the way. All right. So I want to, I think this is a good juncture to talk about myths. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, what are some common myths about, and anybody watching, put in the chat, what are, uh, what's uh, an idea you have about um, sexual violence, sexual assault? Um, and we can start with either one of you. You want to tackle a myth? Well, I know that one common myth uh, comes from the way that we're socialized, the things that we see on TV, we think that sexual assault only happens out in the community in dark alleys and parking lots. And, you know, it's somebody who we don't know. It's a stranger. Now, those things do happen. We know that. But most of the time, actually, 85 percent of the time for adults and over 90 for children, it's somebody that we know, love and trust. So, you know, it's situations where the survivor knows the perpetrator. So we, that's a huge myth that it's a stranger and it's, you know out in the community somewhere. That's a huge number. So most of the people we know have had yeah. some situation. And that's the thing I think we try not to think about. Oh, I hope that didn't happen to somebody. I know it did. So maybe you just need to talk to them about it and talk in general a little bit better. Um, that's right. So, yeah. Uh, one myth that may seem simple, but we have to unpack it is what, and then this is in a heteronormative, um, context, but what a woman wears allures a man and causes him to rape her. Right. Um, and now on a global sense, they're like, oh my God, no, where is 2020, 2021, you know, no, and she wears a short skirt. No, we know that. But here, here's how it works in life, right? As a pastor, you know, I get calls, can, can you ask, you know, so-and-so if they could just dress a little bit more appropriately? You know, just five years ago, I remember I wore a sundress to church. This is my pre-pastoring days, but I was still in ministry in a different capacity. And it, you know, was like just spaghetti straps. It was literally 99 degrees at six o'clock at night. So you can imagine how hot the day was, you know, and it was like an international incident. Like, oh my God, you're showing too much flesh. You're showing too much flesh, you know, and, and this understanding, you know, you are going to distract him if you are showing too much, you know, is where, where does that spiral into, right? Because if I'm dressed a certain way and I have incited him and that, that's the, that's what we hear in church all the time. Well, you know, we can't focus on the word because, you know, she came in with a tight dress on, you know? And so then if something happens to me, like when that, that was the same when the head showing all the flesh, right? With the spaghetti strap, you know? Read, and, she asked for it. Read in parentheses, she asked that's for it. Right. You know, and we, we have to be careful that particularly with these myths that 
on the surface, they seem like, oh my God, who thinks that anymore? But it's like, mm, no, you know, right. like this is how we play it out in our everyday real world right. still. Mm-hmm. 21, you know, right. how we how we sexualize children. That's right. You yeah. know, and you know, I remember going to Target a couple of years ago trying to find my little niece some, you know, some underwear, and it was so hard because it was boy shorts and it was like the little thing. And I'm like, we we just don't see the little undershirts no more, you know, but mm-hmm. how we sexualize children, That's you know, right. and this whole and uh Dr. Kimora Lomax in her book um Jezebel Unhinged talked about how she had on a dress, you know. And a couple of deacons told her father, who was the pastor, can she not wear that dress anymore? Because it, you know, it, it's bothering me. So, okay. You know, so, like, I think definitely under 12, you know, and it's like, are you kidding me? You know, like how we sexualize children, you know, in that way. And so, right. again, it starts off surface, of, oh my God, yeah. And there, there is a statistic, um, that I got many years ago in my training and someone asked, you know, what is the one, and they, they, there were uh, sexual offenders in prison who were surveyed. This one, and it was a longer survey, but one particular question is, what made a victim that you did not know vulnerable? And I always ask my, you know, when I do trainings, can you, what, what is it that you think? And most people say, women and you know I mean short skirt or you know couldn't get away she was you know I had earplugs in everybody got on ear pods now and the resounding answer from the perpetrator was shoes how quickly could the person get away get away so they had nothing to do so if they had on heels and some pajamas that made them easier for them Mm -hmm. it was about so and and again, it it had nothing to do with the allure of what they had on waist, mm-hmm. up, ankle up. It was about escape, right? But now that speaks to the real point of what sexual assault is, and it's about power and control. So That's while right. we think it's about sex, sex is just the conduit to display this power and control. Um, and so people, you know, exert that power and control in many ways, and and some people do that because they know that this is a way that will really hurt somebody, particularly the most vulnerable populations, children and women. Um, yeah, but that's, that's interesting. So it has nothing to do with, um, sexual urges or sexual, uh, gratification. It's, it's not about, so that, that myth is also rooted in, you know, uh, these wild sexual fan, you know, people that just, you know, um, so eager to have sex. And so right, right, right. any type of sexual uh, images will just uh, make them, them go and assault somebody. And, 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 and it's, it, and again, like you said, it's about power and control. It's not about wild sexual urges. And I think um, when we're talking about a heteronormative um, situation like this. Um, I, I tell groups of men, how insulting is that to men? That, that's saying that y'all a bunch of wild, savage beasts who can't control yourself when it comes to women and girls. I and mean, it's played out with it, right? right. Like, you know, with our young, particularly men of color, who automatic, oh, they look, they go get them, you know, like he just looked at a stop sign, he wasn't even from a stop sign, you know. So, we have to be careful in how those things get played out that we see every day, right? Right. Somebody put in the chat one of their uh, a myth is um, that assault uh, can't happen amongst partners or spouses. 
Yes, that is definitely a myth. Um, unfortunately, it was not until 1993 that it became illegal in all 50 states for a, a spouse to, to uh, for someone to rape their spouse. Um, but it is in, on the books in all 50 states. Um, you see that that is relatively recent history, though. So it's still that mindset that, you know, once the, you know, I signed the dotted line, then my spouse owes me, uh, you know, whatever I want. And that's just not true. People still have the right to um, give or deny uh, any type of sexual activity. I'm checking Facebook here. Um, okay, what about, do you all have another myth on the speaker tongue before I go into any? Oh, uh, you know what? I'll say, you know, there's a huge myth that only young, uh, conventionally attractive women are assaulted. And the, the reality is that anyone can be assaulted. So that myth actually keeps people who don't fit that profile from being taken seriously. Mm -hmm. So you have people who are all different shapes and sizes, people of all different ages, including the elderly who are very vulnerable to sexual violence, who, uh, if they decide to report, are not believed. Mm -hmm. And so that, that myth is very damaging to survivors mm -hmm. and, and that people need to know it can happen to anyone. And along that, um, one of the things I think is still hard um, for male survivors is both being a male survivor, period, but then if you are assaulted by a woman. That's right. You know, because you're, you're bigger than her, you're a man, you can overpower her and low key, you didn't really want it. You know, it's all of those things that are played out. Right, right. Um, one myth that, that people say to me all the time, which makes me just, <laughs> in any event, people have people. I don't know why I hear these comments. Well, I know why I hear these comments, but I, I don't know if you all hear these comments. But people tell me all the time the reason that people are gay is because they were sexually assaulted. Oh, no. And it's, it's, <laughs> if you read it, it lacks all common sense, but I'll ask you all to speak before I say how I feel. Well, um, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> One, it lacks, um, there's so many layers to why that's wrong. You know, one, that this is where we had the heteronormative patriarchal stance of what is a right. relationship, what is, what is proper identity, right? right. Start right. there. And then you, unra you unlabel, you know, unravel that, take that layer off. Then it's assuming, you know, that because of this assault that then you're so anti, you know, right. that opposite gender. Exactly. And it's like, no, you know, exactly. <laughs> that layer off, you know, it, it's extremely problematic and it's taking away that person's agency, you know, mm -hmm. and how they identify. And what we often don't talk about, and not to get off topic, is the fluidity of sexuality. Right, right. You know, yeah. and so it, yeah, no, it that's wrong. <laughs> you know, very, um, very wrong. Majority of, and I know Anika probably has the same story. A majority of the clients that I saw were they identified um, as heterosexual women. As we journeyed with them, they maintained their status. And those who identified as lesbian, gay, or queer. They went through their journey. They were like that before an assault. 
Right. You know, that's how they identified, you know, before an assault. And they maintain that after the assault, whether it was by someone of the same gender or opposite. Right. That's right. You know, that myth was actually true. Now, I mean, let's talk about the stats for a minute here. So (laughs) one out of three girls are uh, sexually abused or assaulted before the age of 18. And one out of four women are sexually uh, uh, assaulted as an adult. Now, if that myth was true, there'd be a whole lot more lesbians in the world (laughs) than there are, okay? So, yeah, I I just like to to highlight the absurdity in some of these myths. It's just like, uh, yeah. But I do understand how, like, I remember working on the hotline a lot, of course, agree. The same people, I mean, the people would have been assaulted, but that didn't have anything to do with their sexuality no, no. at all. Um, but I know that that, that layer of kind of uh, the homophobia That's kept right. people from being out or comfortable right. saying what their sexuality was. And so you might not have found out their, their sexuality until after the assault because in their healing journey, now that they're growing and, and finding a safe place for themselves, now they're coming into their own and feeling more confident and comfortable being their true selves. And so in one sense, I see how people could say, well, we didn't even know that. But in the other sense, isn't there something about you that, that I don't know? Do I really know right. everything about you? You mean to tell me that everything about you, everybody knows. Right. So nobody else can have something to themselves. Right. I mean, this just sounds silly to me, but okay. Um, and I wanted to talk about before, um, cause I don't want to go too, too long, but I really want to talk about, cause we've been talking about like heteronormative relationships here and situations. Um, but as a mother to a son, one of my all time greatest fears from the time he was born was of him being sexually assaulted. Um, and he's a child like that was my fear and he's a boy. So, um, well, I know that because of the overwhelming statistics of men being the um, you know aggressors and everything, we speak in those terms, but I really don't wanna cavalierly talk about how men and boys are sexually assaulted by men and by women. And I have um, in my small circles have um, had conversations with men who in the midst of our discussions realized that they were um, sexually abused, sexually assaulted as children by their female babysitters. So they're like nine, 10, 11, 12, and she's like 17, 18. In one instance, she was 22 and he was 13 and had the young boys performing sex acts on her. Um, And Again, because of this, because of our patriarchy, because we have this idea of, well, that's what it means to be a man. So why would you say that this is a bad thing? Why would you tell somebody and whine about this? This is good. Now, you know what to do. You're going to know how to please the woman when you get older. All of that nonsense, um, all that does is cause a, a young boy who's growing into a man eventually to feel like, okay, I can't talk about this. And then to have these false ideas of what it means to be with someone, because now they didn't get the opportunity to have consent. And the world is telling him them that's how it's supposed to be. And if they are not told anything other than that, wouldn't it make sense that they're gonna function like this as they mature? 
Right. And so when we talk about breaking the cycle, I think we really need to discuss um, with our young boys um, that boys can be sexually assaulted. And, and by girls, by women, um, because in general, I think boys probably are more on the watch for a man trying to harm them because they hear those kind of stories. Oh, watch out for this, you know, kind of thing. But you don't hear that. Like, OK, I'm telling my son he can't be left in a room with an older girl. Like, I don't hear anybody saying that. Yeah, right. um, and so that's cool, according to, to rape culture. Right. 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 And that brings right us back to rape culture. Right. And and if men aren't there, you know, and, and women are unsure of that, like, how do we as a community move into that space of having those communications to keep our young boys safe and, and our communities safe? Yeah. yeah, we have to create safe spaces and, right. and bring that up all the time. I have three sons and that that was a fear of mine, too, you know, and. Because society would say, you know, my son is more likely to get shot, you know, and so you don't walk down the alley by yourself. You do this and it's all that is true. And, you know, right. it's not an either or, you know, right. I remember I was definitely afraid when they were getting to that age and they had to go to the bathroom by themselves. Yeah. You know? And so. I was staying right at the door and waiting, you know, but also, you know, I was very attentive, like who who are the women in his circle, mm -hmm. you know? No, you cannot go with somebody just by yourself, you know, right. and, I, and I also modeled the behavior, you know, right. I wouldn't have if I was taking one of my son's friends home, my son went with me. Right, you're right. We all exactly. get in the car, you know, we all get in the van, you know. There, I never wanted anyone to feel uncomfortable, or I'm like, okay, if if something happened and I had to, okay, call your mama, talk while you're on the phone, you know, until I drop you off, you know, walking you to the door, you know, right. all of that, you know. So I'm also right. modeling the behavior of exactly you know, what are appropriate boundaries right. that I'm taking mm -hmm. as a woman, as a single mother, we have yep. a single mother with three sons. So majority of our friends are male, you know, so right. this is what I'm doing. And I would do it with, you know, girls as well. You know, I know mm -hmm. everybody getting in the car, you know, and everybody's going, you know, rare. I never felt comfortable just one-on-one. -on -one. Right. You know, until, yeah. you know, much older, much, you know, and yeah, I, I always modeled that behavior. Right. Right. And I think it's just important for us to have these conversations with all children, regardless of gender. Right. It's important right. at a very young age to teach them the correct names for their body parts. Yes. Nicknames. We exactly. The correct name, just like we talk about arms and legs and fingers and toes. All you know, their private parts need to be, you know, spoken as well. And you let them know that these are private. You know, these are, are you know, there's some secrets that aren't safe to keep. There's some uh, people who aren't safe to be around. You know, if they if they harm you, if they give you that uh oh feeling. So these are conversations we need to have with children. Regardless of their gender, sometimes parents have a tendency to only talk to their daughters and not their sons. Right. So right. that's a problem. We need to have these conversations in the churches. We need to have these conversations oh in the shops and barbershops. Right. So, you know, so everybody gets the same message. Exactly, exactly. We have a comment on Facebook. Somebody says, speaking as an advocate, oftentimes Black, Brown, and other immigrant disabled people are desexualized, literally erased. This, this is an interesting point have no boundaries or are not given a voice within their families. The myth is that disabled folks are either asexual 
or are not sexually active and do not experience rape as much. Mm-hmm. Speaking as a brown disabled advocate. Yeah. I, I appreciate somebody for um, bringing this up because oftentimes um, we talk about these spaces and we're talking about inclusion and yet we'll leave out a population. And that that's true. I mean, people think that just because somebody's in a wheelchair means that they can't have sex or right. that somebody can't harm them sexually. They can't be assaulted, right? So this goes back to that myth that only a certain kind of people a certain profile of a person can be uh, sexually assaulted. So then if someone comes forward and they're in a wheelchair or you know they have some type of, of disability where it's not seen as being con- uh, conventionally attractive to folks, well, yeah. how can that person be assaulted? They, you know, Who would wanna assault somebody in a wheelchair? Well, guess what? They're very, very vulnerable to sexual uh, harm of, of all kinds for that purpose. Right, right, right. Because of that. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I can go on forever. I, I don't want to keep y'all on. I like people to want more. Okay. So I like to be the audience wanting more. And I definitely, this is like a to be continued conversation. Right. right. So, <laughs> um, we had a lot of energy on Facebook. People will be um, watching later. For those of you all who are just tuning in, I have had a fantastic discussion with Reverend Tennille Power and Anika Sterling Flores, and we've been talking about the impact of sexual assault on individuals and communities. A lot of information has just been dropped. Um, We will leave resources um, in the post right after. So if anybody is in need of um, resources, there's a phone number to the Chicago Rape Crisis Hotline, to Rain. I think we have some other resources as well that I'll drop there. Um, but before we close out, do any, uh, either one of you have any last words that you want to say, um, either resources or um, any words, if there's someone out there right now who's in a situation where um, they are being assaulted and they're trying to find their way out or just, just need some words. Well, I think for, for all the survivors out there, it's never too late to uh, get any type of help. Um, one thing that I would really want to say to survivors and to those who might be in a position to help survivors, if you don't remember anything else that we say we said tonight, please remember that um, to say, I believe you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not your fault, you know, and uh, how can I help you? So for survivors out there who may be watching this, um, it is not your fault. Um, if you tell someone and they don't believe you, keep telling. Keep telling till someone does. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, in addition to the resources, um, I will add my church information in there. We are a resource. Um, and I do believe you. And I don't have to know you to believe you. That's right. And if you are looking to be an ally, understand it costs nothing to believe a survivor. Mm. It costs you absolutely nothing. And so I believe you. I want to help you in the best way that I can. You know, how can I help you? And to to keep telling, you know, because a part of the reason why we're still having this conversation in 2021 is that silence is the killer. That's right. Right, right. And I just want to leave people with the thought that this is a journey. Um, You are going to be on this journey as a survivor for a long time, and that's okay. Just like we get a scar when we're kids, and sometimes you still see like a little bit of that scar. You're like, 
when I was seven years old. You see this right here? Sometimes that's still in us for a long time, but don't try to rush that process. That's it's your right. own journey at your own pace and your own time. And everybody goes through it differently. So you got three people here who support you, believe you, that's and know right. it wasn't your fault. There are a lot of other resources and we can all be reached. You can just respond in the chat and any one of us will reach out to you um, and offer any support that you need. Not the support that we want you to have, but the support that you need at this time in your healing journey. Um, and for those who are allies who want to know what to do, there's been some great advice. Again, you can go to the resources that were put on there. And most of the websites do have um, resources as well for allies. So thank you all for watching. Thank the two of you again for being my wonderful guests. And if you could stay on the Zoom for a moment after I um, wrap up here. Um, did you all want to say where you can be reached one more time, your organization? Did you want to just leave? So I'm with the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. And um, our information is included with the resources that RC will be uh, presenting to you. Okay. Uh, and I'm Reverend Tanielle. I'm at Hazelcrest Community United Methodist Church. Uh, and that, I can put that information can go in the chat. Um, and yeah, you can reach me here anytime. All right. And you can find me on social media, um, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, at RC Empowers or at RC Riley Empowers. Thank you, everybody. Thanks again for listening. The Self-Care Spa and Lounge offers a wide range of services to all ethnicities and skin types for ages 5 and up. Skin treatments, waxing services, massages, teeth whitening, and tooth gems are offered. As a proud Black and female-owned community partner, the Self-Care Spa and Lounge is also available for spa parties, birthdays, or private events. Don't forget to book your next service or event at theselfcarespalounge.com. That's theselfcarespalounge.com.